you're listening to Solar Insiders, a fortnightly update on the ins and outs of the solar industry and what it means for consumers. With Renew Economy's editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading solar industry veteran, Nigel Morris. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Solar Analytics, suppliers of intelligent solar monitoring. Hello and welcome to our Solar Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me as he usually does in this fortnightly broadcast is Nigel Morris, solar industry veteran and uh, working with Solar Analytics. How are you, Nigel? I'm really well, Giles. How are you going today? Look, I'm going pretty well. Look, I do apologise to listeners if I must sound a bit croaky or stuffy because I've got an out-of-season flu, but I'm going to soldier on regardless. Hey, listen, we've got a couple of interesting things to talk about. Um, one is some of the statistics that you've got about electric vehicles, which we've kind of sort of infiltrated into the program now, <laughs> and um, that's okay by me. And another one's about some interesting performance statistics that you guys have been doing in your monitoring research and, and yeah. some of the interesting things that, that tells us about the way people use their solar or don't use their solar, as the case may be, Indeed. or otherwise. Um, but look, I just thought we'd just start off with some of the news of the week. And I guess one of the things that got me or interested me was um, well, something at the start of this week, which was the announcement of the switching on of the uh, Lakeland Solar and Storage Farm in northern Queensland. Now, this is an interesting one. It's the first grid-connected solar and storage plant in the country. Um, it's been a while in the making. It was, first, um, it was the first announced about 18 months ago. Um, it's about 10 megawatts of solar. It's about one megawatt, four and a half or five and a half megawatt hours of storage. Wow. Does and that make it, that, make it not, the, not the biggest? Well, like the second or third biggest? Well... Something like that? Which is probably pretty close to the second or third biggest. And, yeah. and it certainly wasn't the quickest because they got the Tesla big battery up in 100 days or less than 100 days. I mean, they've taken almost 100 weeks for this one. Um, so I'm not too sure what's been... What's been going on there, but I think because that's the it's the end of the grid, and because there was lots of new complications thrown up by both the grid operator and also the market operator. Um, but apparently, it's actually been running since November, but it's only just got its final sort of stamp of approval and signed, sealed, and delivered um, at the end of January. So that's an exciting thing to. It is to go. approvals are approvals are a challenge. I'm hearing lots of scuttlebutt, uh, let alone on the big stuff, but even on the small stuff. Um, we actually had a customer call in today and and um, complain about not being able to get this system switched on because you know he'd been waiting some months for approval to get his metering done. Look, we've actually heard a few problems about um, the metering too. Um, I'm not too sure what's going up there in Queensland, but um, yeah, someone thought they were going to get their solar panels delivered and um, it got um, held up by the metering and mm. um, no one seems to be able to give a sound answer. Um, mm. What do you think is going on up there? Look, we know that there was a rule change that came in recently around who's responsible for metering, so which we talked about just before Christmas, actually. And so uh, I suspect that it's the adjustment uh, while everyone gets used to the new rules and regulations about who's responsible and who's coordinating, and there are multiple parties involved. So, you know, the power of choice was supposed to improve consumer uh, choice, which is great, but of course the downside is it's added some layers of complexity and whenever anything's new, it slows things down. Well, it seems to give a lot of people a lot of power of choice not to do very much at all when, the, <laughs> when it comes to do, do very much. Um, it's pretty frustrating, I've got to say. Um, look, just to sort of add to that Lakeland one with the solar and storage, um, it's interesting that we've had a couple of other... Um, 
um, a couple of other uh, similar sort of things announced. Uh, Carnegie Clean Energy is going to do almost exactly the same thing at Calberry, which, mm. like Cooktown, is at the edge of the grid in WA and um, has all sorts of outages and um, blackouts, not just because of winds and storms and um, bushfires and what have you, but also a lot of salt that comes in from the um, Indian Ocean and the prevailing winds there. Mm. Cyclone another... territory, so a difficult place to put a system too. Well, yes, I guess so, yeah. But, I mean, just sort of, um, you know, um, keep your oil handy in case of the salt. And another one um, at um, Danny Port Lincoln in South Australia. Um, this isn't going to be a battery. It's actually going to be a hydrogen system. So that's going to be interesting. A lot of people sort of a bit, bit, um, bit doubtful about hydrogen. But this is a, um, a, a, a um, 5 megawatts or 10 megawatts um, having an electrolyzer there. Um, turn into a gas generator, it can actually provide some of the um, FCAS and network security and can actually island the grid as well. Wow. Um, so wow. That's, that's kind of interesting. So battery that's really storage, cool. Battery storage might not be ha having its own way um, entirely if the hydrogen boys can actually make that work at a cost or, you know, a value addition um, that will make it worthwhile. Yeah, electrolyzing hydrogen's been one of those things that's floated around for years. When I, back in the BP solar days when I was there, we actually had someone come and work from us with us who was from another department within BP, and their sole focus was hydrogen. And BP were putting a lot of emphasis and actually running hydrogen bus trials, you might remember, way back over in WA. Um, and they actually ran several fleet, a small fleet of hydrogen buses for a while before the years went by and they decided to get out of hydrogen. So it's sort of having a... Having a bit of a second life hydrogen isn't it well i actually think it's having its first life um it's just one of those things that <laughs> if the hydrogen economy has been coming for at least three or four decades like some of these <laughs> other economies um so yes. it might actually be having that very first life and yeah. um it's interesting not just the south australian pe uh, people but the act are also looking into electrolyzers and providing fuel stations for um homes and um sorry, homes um cars and fleet cars and also buses and trucks and things like that mm. and it's interesting that the south australia also looking at the bigger picture because they think if these electrolyzers can work and if a hydrogen storage can work um it's really um interesting um for the idea of exporting not just between states ex exporting excess wind and solar not just between states but also overseas and why can't you just replace our export coal industry and our export lng industry with an export green um, hydrogen. hydrogen interesting. 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 Yeah, interesting. I like it. I like yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's see what happens. Now, look, I think you might have something to add to our um, shock file. Yeah, look, uh, interesting, interesting one that's popped up. We've been uh, inundated with interest and inquiries from councils lately. Um, we, we've done a lot of councils uh, in terms of monitoring and, and supporting them over the years. And, and um, the last month's been, I don't know what's happened. There must have been a councils meeting or something. But we have been absolutely swamped with inquiries and systems rolling out the door. And one of the most interesting things that is coming out of that is the number of of solar systems that have been installed that were never switched on. It, it seems that is, that is that is so depressing, but not entirely surprising to hear. Indeed, it, it is totally depressing. Um, and and the first step that we do is we undertake an audit of um, you know what facilities are there and what's required and all those types of things. And uh, the uh, the guys that are out there doing the field audits um, in multiple cases are coming across systems that have either never been switched on or have been in fault mode for you know a year or two years or whatever, and no one was any the wiser. Why well, you ask? 
happen, Nigel? Because they're not monitoring, Giles. <laughs> I thought that might have been the answer. But surely at some stage, at some stage when you connect something, surely someone says, your solar system is installed, I've put in the inverter, I've connected it, I've flicked the switch. Why isn't that producing? Well, this is a really interesting thing about markets, right? For Mrs. Jones or you or me or my mum or my dad or anyone like that, we're going to be noticing it. We're going to be looking, we're going to be looking for a green light in the inverter. We can, we can directly and tangibly interact and, and feel comfortable and we're going to take a personal interest in that. Uh, on a commercial site where someone's invested a large sum of money and they're looking for a direct financial return, they're very focused on data. They're very focused on seeing those savings come through. But when you've got a, 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 a sort of a conglomerate of different entities and institutions uh, without anyone necessarily having direct responsibility, and particularly when it might be a fleet of systems that are being rolled out all at the same time, and you've got you know people turning over things get lost in the mix. Uh, that's not a criticism of councils by any means, um, but it's a real challenge for those types of entities um, to stay you know, directly involved in the process sometimes, it would seem. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. I just, um, I, I just mm. find that really sort of quite hard to believe that something so big can be so missing, but I guess that's, the, um, I guess that's one of the problems with large institutions. Mm. Mm, indeed, and so, I mean, I've heard stories of this over the years as well, uh, uh, with um, in all sorts of applications, both residential, commercial, and these institutional type bodies. But um, they seem to be uh, the largest victims of it. It would appear. Well, there you go. There you go. Now, look, um, you've had some interesting data on um, electric vehicles um, that you produce, and um, we have been talking about electric vehicles. And um, Sophie from Renew Economy in one step went along to the. Um, the Australian Technology Association's um, EV Expo down in Melbourne yesterday and mm. um, had, had an interesting look around. But um, you've come across some interesting data. Well, I, was very, yeah, I have. Uh, I was very jealous when I read that Sophie had been down there because... Um, uh, there was a lot going on and there are a few of the organisers who I've chatted to recently. So, so I've been digging around in the space. So here's some interesting, fascinating facts about electric vehicles version one, Giles. Um, so new data. This is the first thing that's really exciting to me because often you hear the data being talked about that there are about 4,000 electric vehicles on the road in Australia. Well, I vigorously dispute that number. I've been doing some research and there is indeed some good data available that for some reason has not been captured uh, around the total number of registrations and I come up with a number more like 7,000, not 4,000, so almost a doubling of the EV fleets. Not hard to get this data, I don't know why it's been missed, but it has. Well, where did you find it? Uh, so the main source is through registration data uh, oh. and you can go back through registration data in some cases. In other cases you have to triangulate. So you have to look at uh, owners forum data, you have to look at uh, registrations in some states and extrapolate into other states. You can go to the EVA Association. There are all sorts of places where you can try to triangulate the numbers. So there's not explicit data in all cases but certainly the registration data in New South Wales alone uh, makes a big difference to the data that is, is being talked about when it comes to the 4,000. So Second, just in a single bound, you've managed to almost double the amount of EVs registered in Australia. I know. That's cool. <laughs> I like that. Secondly, one of the big ones that really, of course, captures my interest is electric motorcycles. And interestingly, it's easier to get data on electric motorcycles through ABS statistics and registration data because we know there's only two or three types. There is petrol. When it comes to motorcycles, there is either petrol or there is 
uh, other fuel, and in the case of other fuel, the only other type of electric motor motorcycle you can get is either petrol or electric. So if it's other, it's electric. So through that data, we can actually come up with some very, very interesting statistics on motorcycles. Interestingly, 12% of that fleet of almost 7,000 EVs are electric motorcycles. Interestingly, the number three most popular vehicle on the road today in Australia is an electric motorcycle, uh, a scooter, in fact. Um, so a scooter? An electric scooter. scooter? An electric scooter. What's Indeed. it called? Uh, it's called the Fonzarelli. The um, Fonzarelli. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with happy days, does it? It's got nothing to do with happy days, sadly. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of cool. I guess that's why they chose the name. Uh, it is a Chinese-made scooter. Uh, it's been improved and, you know, used up a little bit for the Australian market. Um, we estimate there might be something like 500 to 600 on the market, uh, on, the, on the road today in Australia. And certainly we've seen them appearing in fleets. Uh, you know, there are local uh, pizza chains and a few other places that they've been trialling them, and they're very cheap. They're a relatively low-performance vehicle, but they are cheap, so it's a great entry-level project. Isn't interesting? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's Look, fascinating. I had, a, I had a couple of hundred motorcycles, or it sounded like a couple of hundred motorcycles drive past my ride past my place yesterday. <laughs> I think it was the Harley-Davidson Motorcycle Club, and I can, mm. um, I'm here to tell you that none of them were electric. No. <laughs> well, they may have been, but you wouldn't have heard them. Uh, now... <laughs> well, I, I'm just going by the noise I did here, and I can almost tell you that none of them were electric. <laughs> so, look, yeah. um, so what is it? I mean, look, I'm, I'm guessing then that Tesla is probably, because of its sales over the last couple of years, the um, the biggest selling EV in Australia? Correct. They've rocketed to number one. I remember talking about this a couple of years ago, very proudly saying there were more zero electric motorcycles on the road in Australia than there were Teslas. Uh, sadly, not the not case anymore. anymore. Uh, Tesla have shot to number one virtue most, uh, by virtue mostly of last year. We estimate now they've got about 2,000 vehicles on the road, which gives them a 30% market share. Very... Yeah, that's, probably that. that's the first time I've heard a concrete number. Well, yeah, and uh, some of the some of the data that uh, is behind that is absolutely black and white, right? It's registration, so you can mm. see it by make. So we reckon they've got about a thirty percent market share, and they were the interestingly they were the only EV maker to grow in two thousand and seventeen. Everyone else went backwards in two thousand and seventeen, or sold virtually nothing. That's presumably um, because they didn't really have any stock to offer. Correct. Tesla were the only one pushing the vehicles out, and of course everyone had waited. So uh, the next one uh, was the Mitsubishi Outlander in terms of total vehicles on the road, which is technically not a battery only. It's well, it's not a battery only. It's a hybrid. But yeah. uh, they sold nothing in 2017 and been going backwards, which is a pity. Very popular car. Lots of them out there. Next is the IMEV. There's about 700 of those on the road. Is there uh, really 700 IMEV? Yep. I reckon I've, there is. I reckon geez. there is. I've, uh, I've driven run, I've driven one round a um, a, a parking lot once, and um, it felt like sort of driving an upturned matchbox. But um... <laughs> yeah, they're a great fun little car, but they're very much a little city car, you know. So uh, the new one that's coming looks fantastic. So so yeah, there's some really interesting stuff, and I I look forward uh, to listeners challenging me on this data. If you've got data that shows other results other than these, I'm more than happy to do it. In fact, I shared it with the uh, Electric Vehicle Council uh, just this morning and said, hey, I reckon you guys are underselling this, particularly given that motorcycles are high performance, the lowest cost, one of the longest ranges, and they're in the, they're represented in the top 10, uh, in fact, in the top five of all vehicles sold. So I reckon they've got to get their attention more on electric motorcycles. And what did now, the council say? 
Well, I haven't heard back yet, but That's I look, okay. we'll look forward to their thing. And we look, look forward to hearing back. I, do, I, do, I just one nice little statistic that you do mention there. I've just sort of linked the two is um, okay. Let's assume that there's one thousand electric motorcycles in Australia. That compares to how many in China? <gasps> two hundred million electric <laughs> motorcycles and scooters. This excludes electric bicycles. Two hundred million joules. So that's get. A, I was thinking about this amazing. going. It is. Oh, it's mind-boggling, right? It is mind-boggling. I watched a great little video documentary about this the other night, and it blew my mind. Now, here's some interesting facts. Uh, a, they cost between a hundred and a thousand dollars, right? So they are cheap. The vast mm. majority of them have lead batteries. The vast majority of them require no license. Uh, to to uh, to ride, and it would appear statistically that electric motorcycle riders in China tend to also not follow road rules. So they go every direction. Uh, I think I saw some survey results that said 40% of the riders were clocked going the wrong way up one-way streets in one small survey. Um, so how many of them are still alive? Well, good question. Good question. They have a low range. They have low performance levels, low speed, all those kinds of things. But for popular cities. Uh, you know, game-changing solution and growing at a massive clip. Uh, another interesting statistic uh, that I um, thought about, and I went, wow, 200 million electric vehicles. Now, we're hearing all this claptrap from our friends down in uh, Canberra about how evil electric vehicles are. Well, guess what? If you own a power station or you're part of the electricity network, you should pay attention because those 200 million electric motorcycles and scooters in China, if they're all charging at the same time, their total demand would be 100 gigawatts, Giles, gigawatts. So that gigawatts? Is, are, you sure, are you sure about that, um, I Nigel, am gigawatts? positive. I am positive. I triple-checked the numbers this morning. Assuming they've got very small charges on, bo on board, 100 gigawatts of demand for 200 million electric motorcycles and scooters. So well, massive. That's, um, that, that's a resource that could be drawn on. Absolutely. In theory, at least. Absolutely. <laughs> um, more quick news. Um, so uh, we've also had a special guest in Australia down at the Electric Vehicle Festival in uh, uh, Melbourne, and it would be uh, terribly erroneous not to mention Eva Harkinson. She's a 14-time world record holder on her electric motorcycle. Uh, she helped open uh, the festivities. She's the fastest female motorcyclist in the world. Uh, she, uh, her top record that everyone uh, knows her for, uh, in the EV world at least, was a streamliner that she built, 100% electric, which she did 434 kilometres an hour on at the Bonneville Salt Flats a few years back. Um, we've um, been getting into, we've been in touch with Eva, and uh, we'll bring an interview with her, uh, with her to the program shortly. Well, that'd be fantastic, and um, mm. it might be a very quick interview because we'll probably be doing 435 kilometres an hour still. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Let's get back into um, solar and um, look, some of these monitoring um, stats that you've come up with are really interesting because they give us fantastic insight into, um, into the way that solar systems are being used or as you pointed out before, not used. Indeed, and, and um, you know, the great thing about having over, uh, we're well over 18,000 monitored sites now um, on our fleet, uh, and we're spending a huge amount of time analysing that data and trying to look for trends and patterns and all sorts of various other things. Um, so a couple of bits and pieces. Um, firstly, I actually got to play this week with a, um, a, a, a Skunk Works a prototype model of a Modbus-enabled version of our hardware. Now, um, to the average punter, that may not mean much. For those in the 
industry. Doesn't mean much to me, actually, but anyway. No, well, what it means <laughs> is basically we can plug directly into your inverter or your battery or your inverter, your hybrid inverter, and we can start to do control. So we mm -hmm. can start to do export limiting. We can start to switch things on and off more intelligently. We're all sorts of things that we can do uh, when we actually talk directly to the inverter. So a prototype of that's uh, on play at home. Um, the other thing that we learned, which I thought was really, really interesting, was when people get our devices, we we focus really, really hard on not just the solar part, but also let's, let us help you understand what's consuming energy in your home. And uh, actually one of the PhD grad students who um, we've had working with us um, ran these numbers and really, really interesting findings. So of all the sub-circuits that are monitored um, on our fleet, 45% of those sub-circuits, almost half, are tagged as air conditioning. So what that means is the number one thing that people are interested in understanding how much energy is being consumed on is their heating and cooling load, almost half all the sub-circuits uh, that we've got monitored. Next big one was hot water, um, about a quarter of all our fleets where we've got uh, sub-circuits being monitored are watching hot water. Then it goes down the chain to stove, uh, lighting and pool. Um, interestingly, pools are only about 6%, so I think we've got a lot of opportunity there for helping people understand uh, how much energy their pool pumps are consuming. Hmm. Um, some more interesting th uh, statistics. Um, we've, we've, uh, we're getting very, very close to 2,000 commercial sites monitored now. A lot of people didn't know that we can actually do commercial um, really, really well, but we've got almost 2,000 sites now, and more than a dozen of them are over a megawatt, and many hundreds of them are over 100 kilowatts. So we're actually really pushing, like the market uh, uh, is emerging, uh, is growing into that commercial segment. We're really doing a, a hell of a lot there. The interest levels in, in commercial are, are explosive this year. You know, it's just commercial, commercial, commercial. It just keeps going. Um, I can't name names, of course, but we've got a, absolutely a who's who. When you start to look through these big sites, it's a who's who of interesting businesses and corporate entities uh, around the country um, with all manner of different things, you know, from soft drink manufacturers to wineries to foundries to, you know, you, you just the mind boggles at how many commercial companies are out there using solar and, and great that we can help a few of them uh, get monitored. We've got uh, some more stats for you. We've got thousands of PPA sites that we're monitoring now, which is cool. Um, PPAs continue to be uh, increasingly popular mm. and interestingly we've also got thousands of sites monitoring consumption only which I didn't know until I saw these stats so there's a lot of people out there just interested in understanding how they're consuming energy even though they may not have solar so as a pre-solar tool we've got quite a lot of people um, hooking up to our gear. Yes, well, I can actually vouch for that because I had um, I had the monitoring as a pre-solar tool and um, did find it very interesting, and was quite surprised and interested by some of the findings, like um, the fact that I had an old kettle as a hot water system, and the um, <laughs> and the oven was voracious and continues to be. Um, well, you don't know what you don't know and what you can't see, right? That's, well, that's, that's exactly that's right. That's the beauty yeah. of it. Yeah. Now, look, um, tell me about peer-to-peer -peer because peer-to-peer -peer is one of those things which just sounds um, absolutely wonderful and everyone is kind of interested into it. Peer-to-peer -peer trading, the ability to share solar with your neighbours and sort of, you know, um, all stand around, hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but it's more than that. Um, it's sort of... Um, um, you know, it's, it's the way we should actually be dealing with, with solar. And I guess the, the reason why people are interested is because for most instances or many, many instances, I think it's probably slightly improving now, but for many instances, if you just sell your electricity back to the grid, 
you're not really getting very much for it, particularly in some in, in some states it's changed now, and I've got to say I can't complain to, with what I get up here, but um, but it still makes sense to be able to sell, sell peer-to-peer and use the electricity for the greater good, if you were, and get better value and better money out of it. Indeed, uh, Giles, and, and you know, you've hit the nail right on the head. Peer-to-peer, the, the overall concept, is the ultimate democratisation of energy. Right? If you can generate yourself and you can now also take control of when you sell it and who you sell it to and perhaps when you buy uh, and, and who you buy it from, it's the ultimate democratisation, right? So Absolutely. It and, kind and, of fits and it's, the whole it's thing. a lot smarter than throwing an um, extension cord over the back fence. <laughs> Certainly is. So we're, we're involved in a peer-to-peer project. We were very fortunate to be chosen out of uh, 450 companies. About a dozen were chosen to participate in uh, in a project uh, based out of Hawaii, luckily for the project manager, um, called the Elemental Accelerator Project. And our little bucket of work in that is to, um, uh, to do some trials and see if we can bring peer-to-peer uh, to the market. We call it shared solar because um, that's the terminology we've come up with for it. I like that name. Yeah, yeah. Well, we think it, it tells the story really nicely. So we've kicked off the first phase, of course, like any good development project, it's all about research. So we've now kicked off a formal research project. And we've been interviewing people, uh, just Joe Public. So we've been using a research institution. We've got an in-house researcher who's been doing this for us. And um, uh, so we've been interviewing uh, consumers who aren't involved in the space and know nothing about it to get the kind of uh, man on the street under uh, feel to our research on one side and then the other side is the prosumers so that's the people with solar who might be interested in selling it um, I'll start with the prosumers so um, we, we started our research by looking at them um, so that's people who produce and consume energy um, and non-solar energy consumers um, it came in the second part. Um, so headlines on the prosumer research that we can share so far it is early days, but um, some of the headline statements were really, really interesting. So why are you interested in 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 peer to peer? And and the top five results that we got back were these: number one, the grid pays us way too little for our power, right? So psychologically, I'm interested because I think I could maybe get more from this. Number two, power companies don't pay a fair return on excess power return to the grid. Similar, but a little bit different. Um, thirdly, basically, I get paid 11 cents a kilowatt hour and pay 30 cents to import. Why can't I uh, offer power to someone else for 28 cents and the other party pays a few cents per kilowatt hour to organise this? Uh, so this again, someone saying, this doesn't seem that complicated. Surely we can do it. Um, uh, the next comment was, uh, so I can make more than 7 cents a kilowatt hour. That's presumably on export rates. And the last one, selling, if at a higher rate than the FIT to another customer, while well, they buy it cheaper than what the electricity company sells it for it's a win for the seller and a win for the buyer so again that sort of democratization thing well it's also about setting the rules as well and one of the things that the retailers have been hiding behind um and the networks have been hiding behind is this so-called sort of unavoided costs of um electricity in the wires and every time you use it they want you they want you to pay a bill so if you sell your solar to your next door neighbour for 11 cents, they want to whack a, another network charge on top of it, which is um, patently ridiculous. And that's why um, when peer-to-peer trading does come into force, which it surely must, 
Um, it's going to shake. They've got to get rid of those things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Otherwise, people will just throw a um, extension cord over the back fence, and that's not the outcome that we're looking for. No, correct, correct. It's about how do we uh, best optimise the network that we've got and the grid that we've got. Yeah. So interestingly, now yeah, just to close off on the prosumers, ninety-nine percent said that it was extremely important or somewhat important to get the best price possible for their solar. Now that's a really interesting statement because. A, it tells you they're financially motivated to do this, um, but um, B, it also uh, tells us that they feel like they're not getting the best deal uh, now. Um, however, however, so they want they want a fair price for their solar. That's really the key learning out of that. They want a fair price. They want to be in control of that price, and this is maybe a mechanism to do it. However, being able to nominate the recipient of that excess solar reduces the importance of financial gain. So what that means is, look, if I could sell my excess energy to my mum or my auntie or the local surf club, I'd be willing to do that altruistically for a little bit less. So I'm not worried about necessarily profiteering across the board. I'm quite happy to take an altruistic view uh, towards this as long as I'm in control of that. Um, so that's the, that's the view from... Uh, I, can I can un I can understand that actually. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that makes um, I think that makes sense. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So now we'll switch to the consumers, right? So who, these are these are much more generic um, type folks, not necessarily in the industry or with solar. Uh, they they were similar, but logically, since they don't have solar, their their angle was a bit different. Um, so the first thing was that yeah, when we talked to uh, many many hundreds of people, hundreds of people through this research prog project the enthusiasm was far stronger than we expected. And in fact, in some of the follow-up detailed interviews that we had with them, even those who responded negatively in peer-to-peer, -peer, when we explained the concept in detail to them, they went, oh, oh, well, that's fantastic. Switch hmm. my response, I'm in. So, so overwhelming support, again, with that underlying kind of philosophy of you know democratization and being able to take control um, however the lesson that we learned through all of this is that it's actually quite difficult to explain exactly what it is to a consumer who's not in the industry right it's a complex theory it can mm. be done lots of different ways um, and and the high level story is really really nice but it's when you get into the detail that uh, it starts to get more tricky um, so consumers, uh, the other thing we learned was consumers, of course, love the idea of getting solar generated energy, even if they physically can't put it on their roofs. So renters um, or people who don't have adequate roof space, for example, they're really, really enthusi enthusiastic uh, about this idea. Um, interestingly, just the same as, uh, as our prosumers in the first group, um, uh, they're largely only interested in doing it if it makes financial sense. Okay, so yeah. it's, a, it's a financial option for them although solar it being from solar is important. Um, there was some interest in the altruism uh, angle, um, i.e. I might pay a little bit more for the solar if, for example, it's excess being generated by my surf club or my church. And would I be happy to pay a little premium to support them? Yeah, I would. But it actually gets a bit blurry because, you know, I could donate to them and if it's blended into an electricity bill from solar, it all gets a bit sort of blurry so there's a really important lesson for us there in, in just you know keeping things simple um and oh, the last uh, go sorry go on oh no no look it, it just occurred to me about the shared solar that malcolm turnbull's got 15 um, kilowatts of um, solar on his rooftop and um 
maybe he uh, might like to um, share with um, someone who's renting a house, like Barnaby Joyce, for instance. He's probably struggling <laughs> with a few bills at the moment, and um, and do it that way. It just just it just, Giles, just struck me. Giles, just then. you set the deal up. I'll put the monitoring system in place. They can participate in our pilot trial. Okay, we'll report Done. back to our listeners next week. Next week. <laughs> I love it. Deals on the go. Good work, Giles. Good work. I really should be. I really should be in commercial. I've got to tell you. I've got to tell you. Well, uh, interestingly, the last issue on the list of survey responses talks right to that point. It's all about trust, right? Uh, this whole thing is mired in trust. So, on the one hand, you've got consumers saying, "I don't trust my retailer. I don't. I don't believe that electricity should cost what it does. I don't believe that they're billing me right, or whatever the case may be." Right. So, there's this general distrust that's been well documented about retailers. However, uh, they also feel like, yeah, but they're a large corporate entity, so you know, I guess they're probably held to account. So, if I'm going to buy from you as a peer-to-peer -peer trader, how can I trust you? How, how do I actually know that this solar energy is coming from the local surf club? And how do I know that the rate that you're charged me and the amount of energy you've delivered is, is, is real, right? So this is all about, again, accuracy, granularity, quality of data, mm -hmm. and, um, and you know, being held to account on all of that. So transparency. So really, really valuable lessons. And the last one, which would be terrifying for the retailers, I'm sure, is that um, despite these trust issues, the overwhelming majority said would when asked would I switch providers to access this service if it was available the vast majority said absolutely in a heartbeat so there's a very strong willingness to change providers if there's a good offer yes well, I think we've seen um, we've seen the evidence of that the um, the the turn rates as they um, as they describe him was the number of people who sort of switch accounts every year runs an extraordinary 25 percent um, remarkably, all the major retailers said that their churn is actually below that, so I'm not too sure where the churn is actually coming from in this sort of fictitious land of of, um, of churning. But um, yeah, and it, yeah. look, it's still it's still very difficult to churn, right? It's still difficult as a consumer. I've looked at this issue and and uh, myself. Well, they promise us. They, they promise us it's not. Yeah, well, well, I, I, uh, the Energy Made Easy uh, guys who are the government site uh, admitted last week that a whole lot of offers um, that are available in the market uh, didn't appear on their website. Now, they're trying to address that and have done a whole mm. lot of work. Um, but that is the big picture is that there are thousands and thousands of offers out there and actually you know, being able to fairly and, 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 and simply benchmark those offers against each other so that you know what you're getting yourself in for is the tricky bit. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah. It just goes to show that with all these like titles like Energy Made Easy and Power of Choice, I mean, essentially, it's just a bunch of sloganeering, which really means nothing to consumers. So really, we should be, you know, we've rolled out solar to about, you know, a quarter of all houses across Australia, more than about a third in some states, but we should be continuing to, to roll them out in, um, in more communities. And it's great to see the South Australian government focusing on low-income households and with peer-to-peer mm. -peer trading and all that sort of stuff, then that takes it to the next level and um, I'm, I'm all for it. Mm, indeed, indeed. Now, to, uh, now to, speaking of South Australia and speaking of Tesla, we, we haven't mentioned what happened last week with a certain rocket. Well, we did mention, didn't we mention the Bones no. has gone into? Um, I thought we were talking about Elon Musk, you know, that, that wonderful joke about how he'd left his, um, his wallet in the dashboard. <laughs> 
Or in the glove box. <laughs> in the glove box. Damn. <laughs> I, you know, there's been a lot of really interesting debate. And, you know, this was, this was a point in time, right? This was just one of those things like the man landing on the moon kind of for me and for a lot of people around the world, I think, to see that car. And, of course, you can log on live and see where the roadster's up to uh, at any point in time as it hurtles through space. And everyone's panicking now because apparently it's going to hit the Earth in a million years. But it is going to hit the Earth at some point. Um, but it, but there's been some really, really interesting debate. And, and, and the best quote that I heard was this one. It was for, by Bonnie Malkin from The Guardian. She said, The photograph was beamed down to Earth courtesy of Elon Musk's ego, bravado and a taste for the absurd. It's a human folly and genius rolled up into one, a picture that sums up 2018 so far. And I thought that really summed it up. You know, it was absurd to the extreme to even contemplate uh, doing what he did, uh, but an extraordinary achievement of mankind all in, all in one. So uh, well go. done. And they used to say that you can't hear anything in space, but apparently you can hear David Bowie now on re- on, on repeat <laughs> inside the Tesla. So there you go. No, look, thanks very much for a, um, a lovely discussion once again. Um, some really fascinating stuff. And um, isn't it interesting how we're sort of slowly moving into, or very quickly moving into EVs and, um, and now into space travel. But um, I guess that's all the connected industry. Certainly um, is. Yeah, look, um, thanks very much again. Um, listeners, thanks for listening. Um, please give us your feedback. Um, send any queries in. Um, we'd like to get more feedback about people's issues um, with solar installations and other things. We're starting to get a few through. Um, and please leave a review of the podcast um, on whichever favoured um, mechanism your platform you're using. And um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. See you. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Solar Analytics, designers and suppliers of smart solar monitoring. By navigating the changing energy landscape, Solar Analytics helps increase solar performance and saves money. Visit solaranalytics.com.au, get empowered and make the most of your home energy.